Thank you for tuning in to Chartable Radio. This week's guest is the great Dan Meisner, the head of audience development at Pacific Content and the host and producer of Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. Dan has a long history in radio and he's also a podcast data geek like me. So in this conversation, we talk about his public radio career, his work at Pacific Content, and how they help create great audio experiences for brands, as well as Dan's advice for building a podcast audience. And of course, we talked about the past and the future of podcasting. Thank you so much for listening. So you are the head of audience strategy and development. The head of strategy and audience development. Ah, So close. At Pacific Content. What is... Pacific Content. So Pacific Content uh, is kind of a weird company in the podcast industry. And we're weird in that we don't have our own roster of shows. We don't have our own editorial slate. We don't uh, sell ads on our own network. And in fact, our name does not appear on most of the shows that we work on. So what do you actually do then? So we are weird in that... Uh, The only thing we do, our singular focus, is creating original podcasts with brands. So we work with companies like Mozilla. They are the Firefox web browser people. Uh, We work with companies like McAfee. They make uh, security software. We work with folks like Charles Schwab. They are uh, a large, heavily regulated financial institution. (laughs) Um, And many, many others. And we make shows with them that are designed to be really great, high production value, high quality shows that don't feel or sound like infomercials, but instead stack up favorably against everything else that you could possibly listen to. So some people would call this branded podcasts. We're not big fans of that term. Do you have a term that you guys use that you prefer? Yeah, we talk about original podcasts with brands. And that's partly because I think, you know, content marketing or branded content has uh, a smell to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can work like against... Like inauthenticity it. of some kind? Yeah, and you can feel like, uh, you know, if you're listening to a piece of branded content or a piece of content marketing, that you are being marketed to, right. that you are tr- you're being sold. And what we really preach and what we try and teach our clients to do is to take a really light brand touch on all of this stuff Mm -hmm. and to not make your show about you and your company and your executives and your CMO talking to your CEO about the services (laughs) that you can provide and the revolutionary things you're doing in the industry, but instead to make a show that provides genuine value to listeners' lives, right? Because nobody is going to download an infomercial voluntarily. Right. You might be able to trick some people. But nobody's out there saying like, oh, I want some branded content to listen to. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can fool somebody into listening to, you know, a, an infomercial once maybe, but they're not going to come back. And I believe really, really strongly that podcasts are a medium that are built on loyalty and an ongoing opt-in relationship between the producer and an audience and Mm -hmm. you might fool somebody once, but they're not going to come back again and again and again. And podcasts are at their best when it is this sort of long-term loyal relationship. For sure. For sure. And so uh, what is your particular role as the strategic audience man at Pacific Content? So um, I will give you a little sort of backstory on me because I think 
this might help explain yeah, for things. Sure. Um, I worked for about 10 years at CBC Radio, which is Canada's public broadcaster, Canadian public broadcaster. And uh, I made shows there. And my only job was to make shows that served the audience, right? That, I didn't have to think about how anybody was going to listen to it. I didn't have to think about how anybody was going to promote the thing or how you it was going to sell advertisements. Yeah, no, I didn't do. have to do any of that <laughs> stuff. So I spent the first sort of 10 years of my life in radio making stuff that was genuinely designed to serve an audience and provide real value in, yeah. in their uh, lives. Alongside of that, I, I've spent quite a long time teaching. So uh, I live in Toronto. I, uh, I teach at uh, the University of Toronto. There's a podcasting course there. I have taught radio at Ryerson University. And I've spent a lot of time uh, sort of teaching and guiding and coaching people trying to help them learn how to make really, really high quality content and then how to sort of promote it. And my job at Pacific Content, I like to think of it almost like a, a coach or a teacher or a guide. Interesting. And my job is to teach our clients, whether it's McAfee or Dell or Schwab or Segment or Facebook, right? We're working with all these companies. My job is to teach them uh, to think a little bit more like a media company and a little less like a product or service company. Because we're working with some of the biggest brands in the world and they are very good at marketing themselves. They can market products, they can market services. What a lot of our clients don't necessarily have is expertise in marketing a media product. Right. And the way that you market a podcast is fundamentally different than how you market a product, a service, a widget. A website, an app, whatever it is. Yeah, it is It is a different game. And so my job, uh, by and large, is to work with our clients and to help them figure out uh, not only how to make a great show that audiences are really going to love and get value out of, but also how to get ears on it. And the amazing thing about working with brands is that a lot of these companies have really big existing owned channels. They already have audiences. Right. And that I think is one of the biggest opportunities that brands have is they can introduce people, you know, the 70 whatever percent of folks who don't listen to podcasts regularly, brands can introduce people to not only their show, but to the medium of podcasting. And that right. is a really powerful place. What was be. one of the more successful shows that you guys ended up doing? Um, so we do, we have a bunch of shows that we've done over the past couple of years. I mean, in terms of the ones that have been highest profile or reached the, the largest audiences, yeah. um, we do a show with Mozilla called IRL. Uh, the first couple of seasons were hosted by Veronica Belmont. Uh, the current season is hosted by uh, Manoush Samarodi, who some people might know from ZigZag or her work at WNYC. Um, and one of the really great things about working with Firefox and Mozilla is they own the Firefox web browser, right? Yeah. So like, and there's a lot of people that use that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have, uh, they've got a lot of people who regularly open up Firefox, open up a new tab. And in the first couple of seasons of, uh, IRL, when you opened up a new tab in Firefox, one of the things you saw was, Hey, there's a brand new episode of IRL, which is a show all about that's the an amazing channel. The, yeah. But yeah. it's like. And and the thing, you know, Mozilla is an interesting example because they are a really mission-driven organization. They are all about promoting a healthy internet, right. an open internet. And, you know, the show IRL that we do with them is all about exactly that. It is about how to keep the web open and free 
keep it a little less creepy, you know, all, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So they're, you know, it's, it's not a show that we make with them that is all about, uh, you know, Firefox, the product. It is about the, the their mission and their values, right? Um, so what is great about IRL? It's a really good show. It's hosted extremely competently by people who know what they're talking about <laughs> and who are very, very credible in the world right. of technology and sort of open web stuff. It's not just a branded, oh, hey, this is the Mozilla show or whatever. And, and here's here's what's new yeah. with Firefox. So uh, it's a great show. And they've got an amazing way to get people to find out about it. Yeah. Right. So when we talk, you know, when we talk with brands, uh, we talk about two fundamental things. One of them is creative bravery. And the other is commitment. And creative nice. bravery is basically the idea that if you're a brand making a show, it can't be about you. It can't be about your products. It can't be about your services. It probably shouldn't be your CMO hosting it. It probably shouldn't feature only people who work at your company, right? Like creative bravery means making a show that folks are going to be genuinely surprised and delighted that you made. Uh, that because it doesn't feel like an infomercial. I love, right? I so, love creative bravery. It's such a good way to phrase it. So creative bravery is one piece of yeah. it. And the other piece of it is commitment. And commitment is how are we going to tell people about the show? What are the owned channels that you have? What is a really smart paid strategy? What are some earned opportunities? Internally, you look at a company like Dell or Charles Schwab, they have a lot of people who work inside that company just internally there are lots of listeners or potential listeners who could be turned on to this show. So, um, you know, when you take a really creatively brave show and you take some of the sort of brand, uh, the brand's superpowers in terms of audience development, you kind of multiply those things together. That's what makes for a really, really good show. And you can have one or the other, you can have a creatively brave show, but if you don't tell anybody about it, you're going to, you can have a nice piece of art. But it's not going to have the business impact that you want it to. And, you know, on the flip side, you can have amazing owned channels and you can have a really loud megaphone and tell lots of people about your show. But if it's not creatively brave, if it doesn't cut through the noise, if it's yet another interview podcast with, you know, tomorrow's business leaders. Or, so how did you get to where you got today? Yeah, if it's another one of those, if it's, if it's not something that really stands out from the crowd, then people are not going to come back. So for us, the sort of not-so-secret recipe for a a great show from a brand is that intersection of creative bravery and and commitment. Right. So three words that encapsulate a bunch of actually very complex and difficult things for a brand to do. (laughs) So you you were at the CBC for 10 years. Was that like straight out of school? You like ended up in public radio? Is this something that you knew you were going to do your whole life or did you stumble into it? So one of the – so I I, I think – Timing played a huge role. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started getting into radio, it was through Campus Community Radio, mm-hmm. and I loved the DIY element of that. You could show up and know nothing about how to make radio, yeah. and people would teach you just enough to be dangerous, right? There was sort of a, like a very punk, very DIY kind of aesthetic to a lot of Campus Community Radio that still exists today, and I loved that. Right. And that's so much of what I love about podcasting is if you've got a great idea, there's very little standing in your way from making it. Um, and out of campus community radio, uh, I, I sort of fell in love with this idea of telling stories and recording people and interviewing people and uh, putting it all together on tape. And uh, when I looked around at where you could actually get a job doing that kind of work, 
there was one place in Canada and it was the CBC. Yeah. So this was right around 2004, 2005. And this was like the very earliest days of podcasting. So what got me excited about working at CBC early on was they were some of the first people in traditional broadcast and legacy broadcast who were experimenting with putting out podcasts, right? Right around that same time, they were doing all sorts of weird stuff with experimental online magazines and uh, streaming music services all about indie Canadian music. They, they were doing really cool stuff, 2004, 2005. And I thought, boy, this is the place that I want to be. And, you know, a couple of years ago, when I stopped and sort of took a look around at what got me excited, what I really admired, who was doing work that I thought was really, really great. There's still a lot of that coming out of public media, but the most exciting stuff was coming from like indie podcasters. And I felt, you know, in 2013, 14, right around there, like, oh, there's something going on here people are making stuff that really inspires me mm -hmm. and there are business models cropping up around it that allow it to be sustainable. It can be more than just your art project or more than just your college radio show that you do for artistic fulfillment or uh, some creative outlet. You can actually, there, there, there are jobs. So uh, to make a long story short, I started my career in radio and audio at a time when there was one place that I could do the kind of work that I wanted to do. And with podcasting, a whole bunch of other options opened up. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the CBC wasn't the only game in town anymore, basically. That yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you, uh, if you go to places like the Third Coast uh, Audio Festival in Chicago, which has its deep roots in public media mm -hmm. and public radio, you hear that kind of story time and time and time again, where it's folks who, you know, thought, well, maybe I can go work for NPR or work for my local affiliate and that was sort of it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you look at, you know, the birth of something like Radiotopia or, you know, a little while after that, you look at the birth of Gimlet and you, you know, you, you see these stories and it, you know, it, it takes just a couple people to do it for you to realize, oh, this is possible. Right. Yeah. I could do, I could do that. Or I could get a job there. Right? Yeah. 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 So how did you end up getting hooked up with Pacific content then? So a lot of us at Pacific Content are former uh, public media people, former uh, traditional media people. Uh, most of us have a TV or film or radio background. So uh, the founders of the company, uh, I knew them from my time at CBC. Um, and they said, hey, we're doing this show with Slack. Uh, we'd love for you to listen to it before we put it out in the world. So I just listened to it. I was like, wow, this is this was a show called Slack Variety Pack, which mm -hmm. was the first show, I think, that Pacific Content put out. So it was the, the very, very first thing that the shop made. Great brand to work with. Yeah, Slack is great. And at the time, Slack's brand was very, very sort of fun and cheerful and bright and colorful. And Slack Variety Pack, the show, the podcast, was such an audio representation of Slack the brand and where their voice was at the time. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And I listened to it, it was, you know, it was like a really well-made show and kind of fun and reflected great on Slack. That was when I sort of first learned about what Pacific Content was doing. And uh, after some conversations about, you know, what leaving the CBC might look like, uh, I, I, I joined up and uh, and still there a couple of years later. That's great. Sounds yeah. fantastic. 
And, and you're also the host. You've been doing your own show for quite a while now. Can you tell? Grownups read things they wrote as kids. So this is my indie podcast. That yeah. My wife and, and so I this is, uh, yeah. and, and it is as the name implies, right? It is actually grownups reading things. <laughs> yeah. It is exactly what it says on the tin. Where did the concept for the show come from? Oh, I can tell you the story. It was 2007. My wife, uh, Jenna, and I were visiting her parents over the holidays. And one of the things that happens when uh, you're in your, 20s and you visit your parents over the holidays is they tell you to go down to the basement and get rid of all the crap that you still have at their yeah, house. Yeah, I've so, been there. <laughs> uh, so we were, it was 2007. No. <laughs> so we were uh, down in the basement. We were going through box after box after box of stuff that my wife had stored at her parents' house. And uh, we opened up uh, one box and found her diary from when she was like 12, 13, like right on the edge of being a teenager. And uh, we started reading it out loud to each other. And parts of it were really kind of funny. Parts of it were kind of sad. But it was this window into my wife's life that I never really had before. And it struck us, hey, I bet other people have this kind of stuff kicking around. Maybe it's in maybe it's in their parents' basement. Maybe it's in a storage locker. Maybe it's in a box that they bring from apartment to apartment to apartment to apartment. But they're not really quite sure why they keep <laughs> holding on to it. Uh, so we organized a night uh, at a bar, local bar, and we invited some people. And uh, now more than a decade later, uh, we have a live touring operation. We do about 25 or 30 live events a year in theaters across Canada. We tape them. We put them out as a podcast. 25 or 30 events a year. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a lot of work. It's Yeah, it's a good side job. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, one of the really great things about um, having, a, having a hobby podcast, like having an indie hobby podcast, is that uh, it's kind of a test bed for the work that I do during the day. Okay. Right. So, like, like how so? In that, uh, if I'm working with a large brand, uh, I can test stuff out on my hobby show. Right. If there's a new tool that comes okay, along, okay. Gotcha. if yeah. there's a new marketing tactic that's worth, testing out before we bring it to a client i've got you know an indie show with a decent sized listenership that i can test stuff on um so you know in terms of moving from one hosting provider to another or turning on one tracking prefix and turning off another tracking prefix like that kind of stuff right it's, it's just like a great test sort of like what we're doing with chartable radio here at <laughs> chartable.com uh yeah no you know it's uh you certainly don't want to do that with um, clients that are paying you big money uh, to say, like, "Hey, why don't you try this thing that I've never used before?" <laughs> well, and 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 to be honest, you know, if you're working with a large company, you know, something that seems maybe simple to an indie podcaster, like, "Oh, I'm going to switch from one hosting provider to another," right? That's a big conversation with a big right. client. They might have to run it up the flagpole and get approval or There's, something. There are compliance procedures. There are uh, security reviews. Like, like right. it's, it seems like it might be a simple thing. It's not a simple thing. But for grownups, my hobby show, if I want to switch hosting providers, I can just switch hosting providers. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's great. That's great. So you've uh, been in radio for over a decade. You know, you were in radio for over a decade before you moved, you know, formally to the podcast world. Yeah. Uh, you help brands build creatively brave shows that they then commit to. Yeah. What can you, is there anything that you could share with somebody who's more on the indie side of like trying to build a show, trying to build an audience, either, you know, from your work at Pacific Content or on, on your grown-up show? 
I'm going to answer this and I'm going to give you stuff that I think is equally applicable to indie podcasters and brands. Even better. 100% of the audience uh, covered. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that as somebody who like spends all day thinking about this stuff from uh, from a brand standpoint, but then spends my evenings thinking about it from an indie podcaster standpoint. Yeah. So I think, you know, here's what I wish more people in podcasting were thinking about. I wish more people were, before they started a show, thinking long and hard about what they can offer that doesn't already exist. I think, you know, you've got the latest numbers on your website, but it's, you know, whatever. 670,000 podcasts. That's a lot of shows. It's a lot. It's Justin Jackson on the show said that there's 35 million YouTube channels. So tens of millions of episodes, right? Like the the space is getting more and more crowded. You've written about this recently, right? The number of new shows that pop up. Yeah. The new shows like took like this crazy exponential turn, right? Right. So So I think as the market gets increasingly crowded, the need to be distinct and the need to do something that nobody else is doing and ideally nobody else can do, it's never been more important, right? So thinking long and hard about like, what can I do that I am uniquely suited to do that nobody else can do? I think I wish more people asked themselves that question. I also wish more people thought early on about why they're doing it. Is there a business goal? Is there a vanity goal? Is there an ego goal? And I'm not saying any of these goals are right or wrong. They're all fine. Business, vanity, ego, whatever it is. But being realistic, I think, is your point here. It's like, like, what are you really trying to achieve? It's the Clay Christensen thing. Like, what is the job of the podcast? Right. And I think a lot of people don't have good answers to that question. Right. And it's also uh, getting back to the commitment side of of what you guys talked about at Pacific Content. It's you know, nothing's going to happen. That first episode, it's not like a, a million listeners are going to be streaming through the door, banging on the door of your RSS feed, uh, demanding more episodes, right? It's probably going to be a trickle of people, maybe that if that it builds over time and it builds over loyalty. time with yeah. loyalty, right? Yeah. yeah. So I wish more people like from the outset were thinking about like, what can I yeah. do that's different? And what am I hoping to get out of this? And then, you know, in terms of the audience development piece of it, and again, this applies to brands. It also applies to, to indies. One distinction that I, I think a lot about is the difference between preaching to the converted and growing the pie. Mm-hmm. So like, what are the tactics you can use to build up an audience that are all about reaching existing podcast listeners, right? So like promo swaps or episode swaps. Yeah, drop-in trailers, whatever it is. All yeah. that kind of stuff. It's like, those are great. I love those. I love when shows can, you know come together and become greater than the sum of their parts and help each other and have beautiful reciprocal relationships. I think that's great. It doesn't do anything to grow the denominator. It doesn't do anything to bring new people into the medium. And I think that is a huge piece of it is like, yes, you need to preach to the converted. You need to reach the people who are already listening to podcasts. They are the lowest hanging fruit. But you know, if this industry is going to get to the place that it needs to be and frankly, where I think it should be, you need, to, you need to introduce more people to the medium. And that's not all about the how. I think as certainly as technology people, we focus on the like mechanics of it and like reducing friction. Like oh, if I could only figure out the magic link, I want one link that I can send to all, you know, and everyone will get right. exactly to the right place and it'll be as trackable as I can possibly make it. Right, like, we can reduce it to a technical problem when like, it's really not actually a technical problem. No, and right. like it is, 
I, I think there's absolutely some technical friction. Sure. And there is some there are some bumps to be smoothed out on people's sort of user journey in terms of discovering content. But you know, if, if you listen to people like Tom Webster at Edison, like it, this is a content question as well, right? Like it's not that people don't know podcasts exist. Lots of people know they exist. And it's not that people don't necessarily know how to open up the podcast app that they already have on their phone. Like a lot of people can do that. And we see that kind of sampling. It's there's the problem is there's nothing there for them. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, 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 to me, like when I look at, if you look at like what are the top shows on broadcast television yeah, yeah. versus like the top podcasts, it's like wildly different. Right. Yeah. My uh, colleague Steve Pratt talks a lot about like, where's the Judge Judy of podcasts? Yeah. Where's the voice, man? You know, where the, I would love to hear like some, some voice yeah. show on, on podcasts. And you know? I think, you know, I, I love a lot of the, the product packaging and sort of marketing work and the, the content of the shows that come out of Wondery. And I think one of the great insights that Hernan and the team at Wondery have had is that like you can take mass market, and I mean this in the, the, the best possible way, you can take like fun, pulpy stories. And package them up beautifully, and you're going to reach people who are not necessarily listening, like didn't listen to Dignation ten years ago. Right? Yeah, there are you know the shows like Doctor Death, right, that are just like massive hits yes. across all kinds of listeners, certainly Absolutely. bringing new listeners in. Yeah. Right? You know, and advertising that's not just um, on the podcast app. Yeah. Right. So, so, so <laughs> I think I, I want more people to think about like what can we do as individual producers, as hosts, as showrunners, as shows, as networks, like at every level, what can we do uh, both from a technical perspective, but more importantly, a content perspective that is going to be more appealing to, to a broader number of people? I think that's a great question. You know, for me, one of the shows that I've kept an eye on is uh, Call Her Daddy from Barstool, Barstool Sports. Yeah. yeah. Hugely popular show, totally different than everything else that's in the top 10 or top yeah. 20 at the time. And I see that as a super positive sign for the industry that there is this, you know, frankly, really raunchy show uh, that puts out a new episode every week or two and draws like a totally different uh, demographic than the NPR demographic, right? That's I think that's amazing for our medium. Uh, even if I don't, you know, I'll admit to not listening to the show all that often, right? Uh, or ever. I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's worth listening to because there are so many great lessons in how they have built up a community yes. around themselves and around the show yeah. and how listening to the show makes you feel like you are part of a club, right? Whether you are just a listener to the podcast, whether you watch their videos, whether you read the stuff that they post on social media, whether you've joined the Facebook group or not, right? They are building community around yeah. the show and there's a lot to learn. It's awesome. What they're yeah. doing. Yeah. It's like, uh, I think it's awesome from an execution standpoint. It's awesome from like a content and demographic standpoint. I mean, Barstool is doing a great job, right? Uh, and um, I hope to see more stuff like that, right? I want to, you know, it, I love all the critically acclaimed shows. You know, I did this post on the best shows of 2018. It's like all, it's like Caliphate and Slow Burn and all this like stuff that I loved listening to that frankly is depressing as hell. And it's stuff that like, uh, you know, a mainstream audience, you know, might listen to parts of it or some of it or whatever, but it's not going to connect in the same way uh, as, you know, most of the mainstream, yeah. you know, shows that somebody would watch on TV or whatever. Yeah. I say this as somebody who uh, came up through public radio and has a deep love for the mission and mandate of public radio. But like, 
a lot of podcast stuff, particularly what charted very early on in podcast land mm-hmm. shows its public radio roots so clearly. And what excites me is the stuff that's being made by people who don't come from the public radio world and are not saddled with uh, the conventions and tropes. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm super into, you know, I thought what Anchor did in terms of like expanding uh, the kinds of folks that are making shows. Yeah. A lot of them didn't make the top whatever. Uh, but the idea that you're exposing more people to the creation side of audio, I, I have a hard time thinking that's anything but awesome yeah. for our industry, right? I spoke also the other day um, with uh, Molly Bet. She founded this company, Messy.fm. They're taking a similar tack. And, you know, she got her idea from speaking to a bunch of like women entrepreneurs who like had ideas about starting a podcast, but like felt so intimidated by all the tools and stuff out there. And I'm like, it should be easy. It should be, you yeah. know, we should welcome, you yeah. know, all these, you know, like even if somebody puts out one episode or two episodes of their show, the fact that they like got in there and gave it a shot and tried to like think about what they were doing, hopefully, you know, hopefully people think about it more and hopefully they would come back and do it again. Uh, but I, I think it's awesome, you know? Amen. Amen. More <laughs> podcasts, everyone out there. <laughs> I mean, that, I, and again, I mean, if you look, at my, you look at my subscription list, it's like, okay, Slow Burn, you know, it's my favorite show, right? It's like all New York Times, NPR, whatever. So I certainly, you know, um, am I listening to that many like amateur pods? Like not really. Uh, but I hope, I hope that, um, over time, uh, that, that mix will change. You know, I was certainly listening to shows, even like, I, I don't know if you know the conversations with Tyler, uh, Tyler Collins, like this economist, it's not a great like podcast from like a podcast standpoint, but it's like the nerdiest, it's like the best content for me. It's like this dude asking rapid fire questions to like eminent, uh, intellectuals or whatever, uh, and it's great. And, and, and it's not really like anything else that I've ever heard before. You know, mm. uh, it's like just rapid question after question after question. Uh, and I love it. You know, yeah. uh, I would love for more, more people to like, take that, take that kind of stance and do like an idiosyncratic approach, uh, to their show. Is there anything that you've heard recently that, that you've really liked? doesn't need to be a Pacific content show. Uh, doesn't need to be an, uh, a public broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> what do I- uh, I listen to a lot of stuff for work. I listen to a lot of stuff for research. I listen to some stuff for fun. One of the things that some I stuff for fun, some stuff, for, not as much <laughs> as I would like for fun. Uh, when I put on my civilian listener hat, uh, one of the things that I'm really into at the moment, and I'm a little bit late to the party on this is, um, it is called the dream. Yeah. About multi-level well, marketing. ML, yeah. MLM. Yeah. So, so good. The way that it's structured, the voices that they were able to find, the way that they tell the story. Like one of the things I love about podcasts, particularly documentary style factual podcasts, is when they take this thing that I'm like vaguely aware of, but have no direct experience with and make it come alive and make it feel very, very real and explain it in a way that even though I have no knowledge, no deep expertise in it, I feel like uh, a whole world has opened up. I love that. And the yeah. dream for me, uh, the series, the podcast series, the dream is exactly that. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. I'm not entirely finished with the series. I think I have one or two more and I'm sort of like saving them. Cause yeah, I, I've been I, slowly I, listening also. <laughs> yeah. I've listened just like a couple, you know, a little at a time. That's yeah, funny. Yeah. Um, where do you think 
So you've been in radio and in this industry for a long time. What do you see happening in the next one year, three years, five years? <laughs> Just tell us what's going to happen, Dan. <laughs> what is going to happen? Yeah, what's, what's, so I'm sure you've already seen so many changes, right? We talked about some of those changes. All the shows used to have public radio roots, right? Yeah, and there's certainly and more I, diversity I mean, now. I, so, uh, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm looking forward to is more and more experimentation. Yeah. I am looking uh, forward to more and more people pushing up against the edges format-wise, host-wise, release cadence wise like really pushing at the edges of what the medium is because right now it still looks and feels and walks and talks an awful lot like radio Mm -hmm. and i want some of those conventions to to be busted up or at least people to start sort of creating some cracks in that so like i love experimental stuff like i know a lot of people mentioned it um in you know, year end reviews and stuff, but that everything is a live show. Yeah. Like I, lo- I love that. It is like, it's a great send up of sort of classic public radio interview For sure. yeah. style. Like I, I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I'm, I'm, I'm inter- I'm looking forward to and hoping for more experimentation. I think on the business side, what I really want to see is a greater diversity of business models. Okay. And I say this as somebody who works in branded stuff where we We're not going to call it branded podcasts. But we but. don't we don't uh like we don't sell uh, shave club kits and we don't right. sell Casper mattresses or Endy mattresses or Lisa mattresses or any foam mattresses, right? Zero like, mattresses. No, but we don't do direct <laughs> like we're not in the direct yeah. response ad business. Um and you know, I think that has taken a lot of shows really far i don't think it's the only business model in this industry it can't be the only business model in this industry um so i'm encouraged to see the thing you know the rise of direct patronage through stuff like patreon right? right that kind of stuff but for you know i would like to see more companies like pacific content trying to figure out other ways for folks to make good work and to make good livings making good work that don't necessarily involve, you know, the, the revenue streams that we've seen so far, like yeah. live event sales or direct response ads or patronage. Like, what are the There's other, what are the other more, ways? Right? To, I feel the other ways to, to, do it? to yeah. me, it feels like there. You know, yes, the industry's been around for a long time, but like, there's got to be so much untapped stuff uh, in terms of you know when you make something that somebody listens to and spends hours of their life with you talking in their ears, uh, there's got to be ways to turn that attention into something that can be sustainable for a creator, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, is the mattress the only way to do that? That can't possibly be, right? Yeah. Not that I have an answer, but... <laughs> yeah. And then the, the the last bit of it, and this is this is maybe, this is not turning into a uh, what's going to happen, it's what would Dan like to happen. Yeah, but like that the, sounds the, good. The, the what last would Dan bit like of it is happen? like, you know, I'm a bit of a measurement and... Uh, analytics nerd and that's why you're a great guest on the show one of my <laughs> one of my you know one of the disappointing things in terms of the the current state of podcast measurement is of course the fragmentation of mm-hmm. everything um which is why i'm so interested in what you're doing at charitable but the the measurement in some way is a reflection of the business model and you know what i care about is building ongoing long-term relationships with listeners and the current state of the art in measurement is how many how many ad impressions can we sell, right? And in the same way that I wish there were more business models, 
And in the same way that I wish there were more uh, varied formats, I want there to be a greater diversity of success metrics for podcasting, whether that's more reliable sub counts, whether that's better engagement metrics than what we can get from places like Apple or Spotify, you know, and we're seeing that with, you know, individual um, hosting providers starting to give us, you know, telemetry to, right. use, to use somebody's word. Um, you know, like I, I just, I, I, if what you care about is people really engaging with your content and coming back time and time and time again, like downloads are not the best way to do that. And right. I, I want, I want more robust measurement tools. Right. So you, so yeah, downloads reflect the business model, which is like, okay, how many, how many impressions can we sell? Yeah, right. We measure what we can sell. Right. And, and, and I like this framing of, of you're looking to push on the, on the edges of format, on the edges of, um, business model and on the edges of measurement. And they're all in some ways kind of related, right? Of course. Yeah. Different shows coming out of different cadences with different definitions of success, but by definition have different, um, metrics that they're looking at and, yeah. and, and potentially different business models. Sounds and, great. And it comes back to this whole thing of like, why are you doing this in the first place? Right. Because the reason that you do a show, if you have a buddy cast and it's all about like getting together and seeing friends and it's not about selling mattresses in a box, like why on earth are you using the same success metric as uh, Joe Rogan? Right. Why? And if you're a brand and what you want to do is have a deeper connection with your existing customers or you want to be a great first touch point for new customers, why are you using the same success metric as the people who sell mattress ads? I love like, it. I it sounds so like, obvious, but like, no, I mean, I feel like I, I'm somehow the way you're framing it is like almost like the first time for me, even though I spend all day thinking about metrics, it's still like, you know, it, it seems ridiculous when you frame it like that. So it's like, yeah, have a goal and then have measurement that reflects what your goal actually is. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, it sounds so simple. And yet, uh, somehow, <laughs> somehow gets ignored in this whole, in the 670,000 podcasts that are currently, currently around 2000 new each week. Right. What's the, what's the coupon code for, uh, this episode of, uh, chartable radio. Just go to, uh, chartable.com, enter coupon code, Dan, <laughs> that's D A N. And you'll get 10% off of something really good. I promise. <laughs> First, I'll have to put a coupon code field on the website. But <laughs> All right, Dan, thanks so much for coming to Chartable Radio. Uh, uh, Dan Meisner from Pacific Content uh, in New York Live. Thank you for being here. From Chartable World Headquarters. Chartable Great. World Headquarters across you. the street from Grand Central Terminal and very loud. We'll see how this pod turns out. <laughs> 